You're listening to Story Power, the podcast dedicated to disruptive storytelling. These are the stories of everyday people changing the world. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Welcome. Today on the show, I am joined by Hannah Naomi. She works in communications, marketing, and social impact at Reed Temple AME, is the founder of Lead With Me Racial Equity League, the founder of Lead With Me Social Impact Strategies, and the host of Lead With Me, the podcast. So what I actually like to do is hear from you and have you introduce yourself. So imagine you're giving your bio and share with us your bio. Wow. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity. And I'm really excited. Um, My name is Hannah Naomi. And I dream big. I don't fit in anyone's box. I never have. And what I focus on my three constructs in life um, are social impact, uh, storytelling, and collective empowerment. And everything I do in life, no matter what job I have, area of profession I have, any projects I work on, even how I am a mother, it falls under those three constructs. I exist to bring to life people, ideas, and organizations uh, to help them find that why and lead from that why and how to use it for social good. That is what I believe. And that's who I am. Wow. That resonates with me so much. (laughs) Story power being the name of the podcast. The thing that I'm really focusing on with this is the power of story to change the world and the power of narrative and this idea of disruptive storytelling. I love disrupting. I am a disruptor at heart and I also love community. So those two things might seem a little in contrast to one another, but they're not. So I'm kind of focusing on that. So I love to hear that from you. Before we get going into some of this stuff, this is the day after the inauguration. And I would love to hear from you about just what was your experience kind of leading up to this? Mm -hmm. How did you celebrate the inauguration? What was that experience like for you? And, Mm -hmm. And just what are you feeling today, the day after? So in terms of the inauguration, being a Black woman in this country is one thing. Being a Black woman who is conscious of history and contemporary issues that Black people face and navigating the world with that consciousness, sometimes you find yourself uh, not wanting to celebrate too soon or not knowing how. And as vocal as I am outside of moments like an inauguration, I actually find myself silent with riots or the insurrection that happened and the inauguration, because I don't know what to say. I also feel like I see what my ancestors have seen, plus what I'm seeing. So it's a collective of 400 years of behavior, good and bad. They've seen the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, MLK, Megger Evers, and other great leaders. And you've seen Presidents, you know, such as Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, his his wonderful wife. And so I was happy, but it's really hard. You have to stay grounded, right? Mm -hmm. 
you know, don't get distracted. But I had to allow myself to say, this is a day where you can actually have joy. Mm. Do not allow yourself to be so conscious and so entwined with your history and your story that you cannot live. My father, who was a pastor, used to say, don't be so knowledgeable that you're no earthly good. Mm. And so I actually did not for a moment want to watch the inauguration. One, I have a sixth sense, like a clairvoyance type of thing. And the energy had fear in it, in the air. And I always think about trends over the years. And we haven't had an assassination in many years. We haven't had anything major that may be conspiracy theory, like the Twin Towers. And I said, maybe this is it, right? And I didn't want to see that by accident on TV. So I actually did not watch when it started at 11. Like I said, I had to give myself permission to enjoy this history. I was going to miss history. Mm. And so I actually started about 30 minutes late and found joy in that. And it wasn't until our vice president, Kamala Harris, took oath. It reminded me of as a kid, every time they asked at the beginning of the school year, what did you want to be when you grew up? I would say the first black woman president of the United States. Mm -hmm. I suppressed that memory. I said that until senior year, from five till senior year, till 18. I suppressed it after that. And it did not come back to me until yesterday. And I was extremely teary-eyed. And it's not about how the character or how perfect or imperfect she is. It's what she represents. And so that was a very important moment for me. I also felt like our new president has gone through enough trauma to have empathy Mm. to and how he's navigated that. Good enough for me to truly have some faith in leadership. And also tell myself, you know, they are not our saviors and ignore the ones that think that because some people, oh, they're coming to save us, but they represent something good. Mm. And this this is not the lesser of two evils. Um, I know some people say they're another white man, but sometimes white folks can use their privilege to heal. And so um, that's how I felt yesterday leading up to it, the whole insurrection thing on the 6th. Not shocked. I just, I I know so much history and because I'm into creativity and storytelling through creative mediums, I also have seen a lot of videos, videos unseen, videos of part documentary. So I have a lot of film in my head and it just reminds me of the past. It reminds me of white people got mad and burnt down Oklahoma, right? The, the city in Oklahoma in 1921. It reminds me of that. And that's not the voice of the oppressed. So they're rioting. So that MLK quote doesn't fit there. Right. And so um, I think what bothered me more so leading up to the inauguration is this is why it's hard to celebrate. We also have to keep going during these things. We have to keep going through Trayvon Martin, through Sandra Bland, through everything. And I remember the type of work I'm in. We are, we are here for the community. And then we have to tell the story or offer solutions. And I couldn't stop. I'm on the phone getting ready to produce an emergency 911 prayer call for peace in the streets. And I couldn't even cry. Mm. I've never been able to stop. And even here with my kids, not, not here with me for the first time in 16 years, I couldn't stop because I had them. And now here, 
even work. And so I don't know if it's even realistic to have a moment to just like check out, you know, or even if that's right. I, I just kind of grew numb up until the inauguration leading to my decision the day of. But I am hopeful as this, I think, is a turning point for the country. But the executive orders and legislation and things would not be done without the voice of the people, without what happened over the summer, without the um, all the things that are coming to the light that a lot of us, including yourself, have been saying and how people look at us. Oh, that's just the, the socially conscious Black power people. And even I want to be mad at my people and say, you guys laugh at us, right? And say, you know, live your life. And we're like, this is serious. And we are like defenders of the community. And here they are. Don't worry about it, right? And so it also feels like now you guys are using our language. Now it's it's popular to use this racial equity on the news. When things hit the mainstream of social systems, such as media, either they are extracting and using the moment, or it really is coming to the surface and what we thought would never happen, even though we fought for it, is actually happening. And you still don't know. So you're still like cognizant and like looking over your shoulder. <laughs> but yeah. you have to celebrate that. Um, and so that's where I am prior, you know, during um, and post uh, the inauguration. And there's a lot that has to change. Um, and it won't happen in four years. But there's some things that can get done to propel us to the next four years. Yeah, I really appreciate everything that you said there. And a lot of it, like I can relate to a lot of it just on some small level, being in movement work and activism and, you know, just constantly going and constantly faced with the devastating silence of people, disinterest, argument. Because for me, as a white woman doing work for justice and equity in any capacity, my job is to get my people and have those conversations. And so I'm constantly having these conversations with white folks behind the scenes. And I, I definitely relate to like just a sense of numbness. And there was so much trauma. Like there was this point months and months ago during the protests, Mm -hmm. which I was a part of, I know that you were a part of, I had a lot of friends who were a part of them all over the country And there was this Mm -hmm. moment where I watched President Trump talk about how he was going to essentially, you know, it's like I I watched him lay the plans for dehumanizing, creating this boogeyman in Antifa, and then giving an excuse for the militarization of law enforcement. And Mm -hmm. I like I had this dissociative moment where like something broke in me. And something checked out. And I remember I was like, I've got to leave the house and I've got to go for a walk and I've got to try to get back in my body. Something shifted for me in that and feeling a Mm -hmm. a sense of trauma and fear for the country and for people and for movement toward greater justice and stuff. And so, yeah, something you said really stood out to me and you taught you, you mentioned, you know, not really knowing or being able to trust is what we're seeing in the media an actual shift and change? Or are mm-hmm. they just talking the talk because this is the popular thing to talk about at the moment? Maya Angelou says, when people show you who they are, believe them. Mm. And because we do know media is part of the five social systems that 
kind of uphold white supremacy, I would not say that has changed. It is when they're forced to acknowledge things, they're probably uncomfortable making the calls to use those that language. I bet you there's a whole meeting about what language they will use from systemic versus systematic, from social justice, racial equity, equality versus equity. Equality is to me now the safe word. And they kind of blend that with color blindness a little bit, even though that wasn't the intention of King's message of equality. And so I think it's more so these systems are forced to do that because of the voice and the stories of the people. I'm into storytelling because you it's it's another form of evidence. And all of these stories from our ancestors to today can be as powerful as the ocean. Mm. And so if you have media that upholds white supremacy and these systems are not running people, people run them, then at some point people are going to have to make a decision. People with influence directors, news anchors themselves, movie makers themselves, those who choose the casting of identity of people when they use commercials and representation. They're forced to make a decision that it's all about money or is the right thing to do is begin to address this stuff, to change these things. And so I don't think the system necessarily is making the decision. I think the people are being forced to make the decision. And some are going to make the decision because it is starting to become pop culture to be an activist, right? But just like our marches and all the things that happened over the summer, everybody wasn't out there for the cause. And so you always have the other side. But I do have faith that people can change or what's the point in doing this? And because people run these systems, these systems will eventually change Mm -hmm. as representation changes, as all the work you're doing to address white privilege and discomfort. The moment white folks become comfortable with our hair, our voice, our community Mm -hmm. and who we are and what's happened, acknowledgement and accountability, the sooner these systems will change. Yeah. And so, yes, it still upholds white supremacy. It has not changed. Right. But I see a shift in the people who run these spaces. Yeah. And this is where your work comes in. So can you tell us about your work and what you do? Yes. I don't lead through social justice or social good. I more so lead through this awakening of who we are, authenticity and authentic power. Um, And the way I see it is there are all these cracks in the world that impact people's human rights and ability to exist, their right to exist. And for every crack in the world, there's a person who is destined or designed to solve at least one of those problems. And how you get to finding that is literally discovering your authenticity and finding out how does that authenticity, you know, what part of that is my purpose? What problem am I supposed to solve? In higher education, I would tell my students, we no longer, I would tell my colleagues, when I would speak, we should not ask students what they want to be when they grow up. We should ask them what problem they want to solve. And you'll find that people have been impacted, are been affected personally, institutionally, or societally in some way, shape, or form. 
And people usually become agents of change as they become the solutions to their own problems. For example, I'm only in higher education to fix it. I did it for 10 years. I didn't want to be a teacher. I didn't want to work at a university. I had access denied, but I also knew the weight of that social system. Out of the five social systems, although law is the most probably violent and education is about vitality and like our legacy and lifeline because it's our children. And it's a way for access to economic growth, even with the systems being the way with job hunting and stuff like that. We value a degree a certain way. Uh, so education was my ticket out of intergenerational poverty. My father was born on Skid Row in Los Angeles in 1930 in the Great Depression as a black man. And my mother has a 10th grade education. And I knew I needed to go to school in order to have a different life. And when I realized how hard it was for me to go to school, even when I did everything I was supposed to, and all the access opportunities, all the access or issues that I had, I wanted to fix it. And I think there comes a time where we make a choice when we realize the system is not set for us to win and you gain that knowledge, you could say the odds are stacked against me and who I am and my skin color and my story and my class and where I come from, there's no way I'm going to win. You can become stagnant or you can give up and die, whatever the case may be. Or you realize that you are somebody. You realize that you have a purpose. You realize that you have gifts and talents that only you possess the way they're supposed to possess. You realize that maybe the systems in place are not right. And maybe if you go to the right people, or you say the right things, or you think through these things, maybe you can change them. And you say, I'm going to be counterculture. I am going to be positive. I'm going to have this uphill. I know it's an uphill battle. I'm going against the status quo because the status quo is not right. But I know there's a possibility to shift paradigms. And so there, there, there comes a point where you make a choice to do that work. And you find yourself passionately fulfilling a purpose to change something, right? With the potential, because there's a, the potential, how it's activated is you find yourself doing those things to change problems that affected you. And your gifts, your potential, your strengths come out in ways it's called upon in ways that you didn't even know that existed. They, you didn't even know those gifts existed. And so I, I always say, when you find out who you are, you'll find out what problem you want to solve. And how it links to social justice or social good is simply, again, you'll find yourself solving one of those problems. But sometimes you have to bring light to the problems that exist. You have to educate people on social systems, you know, power constructs, tools they use for power, privilege, and oppression. And so that they can have an affirmation. You're not crazy. When you are denied this, it's not in your, it's not perceived because yeah. the world will have you believe that your pain is perceived, mm -hmm. that your experience is perceived, that your story was made up and exaggerated. And so the education piece on racism and equality, then equity, then adequacy, right? That's important to help people navigate fulfilling that purpose and problem solving. And that's where my social justice or social activism work comes in is who are you and how are you going to change the world? Wow. So I want to go back a little bit and ask you, 
What was that moment for you? Was it a moment? Was it a culmination of things? How did you come into that place of realization? Hmm. So it, it starts on, unfortunately, just like I said, people have been impacted personally, institutionally, our society affected. And you kind of just kind of live life through the stories. My father would tell me much about his life. And I, as I got older, I got into ancestry to find out more about my family. I knew about my family, but I knew stories. And I wanted to put kind of facts with stories. I wanted to put a street address. I wanted to see where the house was maybe that they lived in. And when those things would happen where my dad said, you know, we were raised on Skid Row near the old Coca-Cola factory in LA. And I looked up the address and I see old pictures and... I would cry, right? It's like it's like you give life to stories. Um, and so for me, understanding my people and starting with my family and their stories and how they navigated this world was one. Growing up in poverty and my sister who suffers from mental health issues, all the challenges we had as family. And then you, I realized that a lot of Black families have these challenges. And because I, one of my gifts is um, inputter, that means I'm into data and history. I just kept digging because I needed to understand why we were in so much pain, why things were so bad. And I thought really understanding who my family was, was that. And then you learn mental health. I learned that my grandmother was committed into a mental um, asylum born in 1906. And Black women post-failed reconstruction, early 1900s, often were committed. Um, the family I live with, his mother, his mother's mother, also born, 1906, was committed. I think Black women were tired at some point. And they said that she had mental health issues. And then um, her her daughter, so my aunt was telling me her sister, which is her, her, her my aunt's sister, which is her my grandmother's daughter, they said she was depressed. Um, and her other brother, 1905, they said he walked around talking to himself. And you hear about your people being tired and how it affected their mental health. And then how is that passed down to intergenerational trauma? How my sister was was committed and has been, um, they said she's bipolar, right? And my older brother, who's passed away, um, also lived many years in a mental asylum for bipolar schizophrenia. Then you think, I don't want it to get to me. I don't, it's on my heels, my sister, my brother, from poverty to mental health. And you see how it affected the community. So understanding history was really key. And um, from the Black perspective, my, I, st- I first started trying to write a book, Unfiltered History Through the Black Perspective, because you're taught history completely filtered. And so if you go through everything you're taught from before Africa all the way to when Black folks apparently got here, and you go through it from the Black perspective, not from the slave master, not from those who wrote the legislation to free us, the forefathers, not from everything in Reconstruction, post-Reconstruction. You look, look at it through our lens. It's a hell of a story. And so understanding eugenics and um, yeah. understanding the people that took off their robes and became presidents and became over our, our defense and over the CIA and our teachers and how that they put on suits by 1920 um, and made it hard for us and Jim Crow and things like that. So 
history was was one. Um, the other part that kind of helps me with that. So seeing that and then organizing the world by these different systems. So my own story. So I say the five social systems, healthcare, education, media, law, and money, right? And systems of power and how they impact us, you know, based on social constructs such as race and gender and class and seeing how they literally have impacted every area of my life from healthcare, access to healthcare, physician bias, um, being offered um, sterilization by the age of 25, offered a hysterectomy, um, things that you wouldn't normally do, <laughs> like crazy stuff, right? And then home loans and things like that. You And you kind of compare that to the past. When I talk about Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood originating from the, you know, with the goal of the sterilization of Black folk uh, and Indigenous folk, actually. Yeah. Right. And then money and how poverty has affected us. And and my parents never owned a home. So I didn't know even the language of home ownership and that if you can just get your first home, it helps you get your second home and it helps, you know, you know, stuff like that. So I, I didn't know how to write a check until I was 22. And my daughter was in another program that helped teach about money and she was 10. And I remember she came home and said, Mom, I learned how to write a check. I wrote a check for some groceries today for stuff like that. And I cried because I didn't know how to write a check. Um, you know, I knew, I knew my mom wrote checks and would kind of say, I know the money's not in the account, but by the time they cash it, you know, those are the behaviors in the language I knew. Um, media representation. I was in love with white boys. All I saw was white boys. I did not have enough representation in front of me. I used to hate my name. Although it, it's very European, I thought I wanted to be Courtney and Ashley. So there was a lot of self-hate with media representation, but did not know that I'm supposed to have people on TV that look like me. And so media was an issue. Law was an issue. Education, I dropped out of school, having a hard time. I got pregnant and just didn't have the resources. And literally they said, you should probably just leave and come back maybe, you know, when your child's a little older. I was 19, Cal State Northridge. I will never forget it. And I did, but just my job for many years at UCI was to help students like me. And so that made me give everything. So I would never do what they did at Cal State Northridge back in 2003, right? So education, law, all those things. And so seeing how I've been affected by all those different systems, again, I said, there comes a turning point where you say, um, I'm going to change these things. I'm going to accept them or I'm going to heal or I'm going to just give up, right? And so for me, the turning point was realizing my power. And we don't always know who we are. Although I focus on who we are, it's an evolving practice to understand, to develop your identity. And I think when, you, when people get opportunity to lead, there is such an energy that says, if I did this here, I can do this here. And this is why I believe in collective empowerment and mentorship. If I did not have a following, but you believed in me, you saw something in me, and you said, come on my podcast. And the story and the residual of that is major impact. Stories come in. I heard this and this happened and my life changed. And it's reading letters and it's seeing the result of your opportunity to lead that says it gives you voice and you begin to explore other opportunities. It gives you uh, 
confidence and courage at the same time. And they're totally different things. And so for me, it is when I was bold enough to be in community with other people to see my light. And when other people saw my light, they decided to use their influence, which is why I talk about influence, because we really need to do this together. And when someone uses their influence to help someone else, you've unlocked a person's journey to leading change. Mm. I mean, it, it's, it's amazing. So my turning point was it being in community and surrounded by influencers who had opportunity and access. And excellence is led by opportunity. So you do it in excellence, opportunity will follow. And so that was my turning point for me. So that's why I encourage collective empowerment. Oh, I mean, I'm like <laughs> sitting here. It, it's interesting because I've recorded probably a hundred podcast episodes and I've never had one where I literally just feel like I'm fighting back tears the entire time. But there's something moving and stirring mm-hmm. in this space. And I just yeah. I just feel like it's it's just a really sacred moment and I appreciate you coming here and speaking. Well, I this. appreciate your you even offering me to come on and um do this in a business world, especially in the black community. Our definition of excellence is to be very westernized in the workplace, deliver, navigate this whole system and win. We don't stop and heal. And it's embarrassing to heal. I am really good friends with a person right now. We're working through that where this person is, I mean, achieved a lot, is everything that the world says is excellent. And I'm not trying to impress that, right? And so there's a there's a there's a fear on this on the East Coast with all these, these black folks that are just winning. A lot of them don't know who they are. They're winning in a white world. And so here I come, all this energy, less, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a win regardless, but I don't have as many degrees. I'm not Olivia Pope, right? And this whole DC DMV side of town, if I could get my hands on these folks to let them know. Imagine this is who you are with these degrees and these achievements, which are supposed to only be conduits, right? Imagine when you realize who you are. Imagine when you realize your strengths and that, and you take back your power. And what I mean by that, sometimes we're governed by what people think of us to the point where we lose power. Power can never be taken. You only can give it. Mm-hmm. And so authentic power is a whole nother definition, but just your power period in terms of, yes, it can hurt us if I'm fired. Yes, these systems can hurt us like they they have. But when you say nothing can stop you, and I had COVID and I was sick and I said, you know, not white supremacy, not COVID, not nothing can take my power. Mm-hmm. Not losing a job, not the death of a child. And it's just a matter of not giving up, um, right? And when you realize who you are and what you've come to do, none of those things can stop you. You navigate the world differently. You parent differently. You, you walk in a meeting differently. Mm. I'm not walking in the meeting afraid of my boss. I tell my boss all the time, I don't work for you. I work with you. I collaborate with people. I understand people whose responsibility is to manage other people, but I don't work for you. I work with you. Mm. And that is my how my insight is. Right? Insight is. So- for me, it's it's liberating to understand your power. It's so important to understand your power and that we are going to navigate this life and have ups and downs, but you can't let your light go out and you can't let anyone take your power. 
That's powerful. And like one of my questions for you, but you've already covered so much of it. But one of my questions was, you know, I noticed that in your branding lead with there is this collective sense. It's with people. And Mm -hmm. I think that's so important. And it's so countercultural in so many ways, because people are just kind of out taking care of themselves. If I think of myself, I've always been a very independent person. And that is often because of pains that I experienced in the past, where I internalized these pains and I decided I need to do this stuff on my own. I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to let people see weakness. And the thing that I've really been leaning into and learning a lot over the last few years is the importance of the collective, but also how much for my own lens, whiteness is not about the collective. Right. Like I grew up very politically libertarian for a very long time. I can't think of a more pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality and ideology of this rugged individualism and all of this. And I realize now how much wounding came from that to myself. Right. Right. And so this this collective that I have been able to step into and feel a part of and work on creating has been such a powerful, healing, liberating force. And I've only just begun to taste that. You know, it's such a it's such a foreign concept for whiteness. And as Mm -hmm. I myself work on deconstructing from that concept and stepping into this more, it's like just being in vulnerable spaces with people, you know, it's such a powerful and beautiful thing. And it gives me so much hope for collective liberation and for that, that concept to actualize. That makes me smile because I always talk about there is reciprocated healing when you do lead with me work Um, and lead with me just overall is just a call to walk into walk in your purpose and change the world unapologetically. Um, and all that pre-work that I talked about, talked about authenticity. There is so much knowledge and really understanding the difference between dependent, codependent, intradependent, interdependent, right? And there's a, 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 for every version of liberation from being dependent as a child to being codependent, intradependent, interdependent. And there's that power piece. I'm afraid of losing my job. I'm afraid of those people, the intradependent, uh, you know, interdependent. Peace for me is the collective empowerment. When you understand who you are, then you can go into a space and people, you can negotiate change. You can go into a space with people who with opposite beliefs. I love difficult dialogue. I love mediating discourse and dialogue and the difference between that and coming to solution. I'm a problem solver at, at heart. And so the liberation piece of authenticity and understanding your power all goes to lead with me. And there's a reciprocated healing. When you find, you'll find your healing in helping other people, in helping the education system. For every win that I got, it was a notch in my belt. For every moment that I knew that this no longer is going to affect this group, that I helped write an internal policy at the university so that every incoming Black student is not affected. I helped to create a center for Black students or resources or a program. One, it seals that happened to you or you didn't have these things. And now moving forward, this group will. So you're healing the world and you're healing yourself. So it's a reciprocated healing. Mm. So that's the importance of that's part of the lead with me in the collective piece as well. And another part of the lead with me is coming to the table 
knowing your power and saying, this is what I have. I negotiate. I can get you guys live if you need to go live. I can help write letters. I can do these things. Another person, here's what I have. I'm the president of a college and I have this space. I'm this, right? You bring all your resources to the table and you come up with a solution to a problem collectively. And this is why you're kind of starting to see more of the change. And so let me, for example, the Racial Equity League. I could continue to do work by myself for racial equity. Or I could invite a bunch of influencers to the table who are passionate about creating a racial equitable society from presidents to communications folks to folks in education, healthcare, uh, the CEO of Kaiser, whoever's committed. And we could say we're going to collectively send a letter to meet with Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders or the Speaker of the House. And when they see the influence that wrote the letter, there's a good chance they'll come to the table with you. We can get more done together. And we each have this power and these resources to bring to the table. This is truly rooted in the village concept. So if you, after you talked about this idea of like being vulnerable and all these things and working with other people, how it's foreign, historically, we have been conditioned and social engineered away from what Africa has taught us. We believed in our village elders. We supported women and life and pregnancy and men and children. And everybody had this sense of like, we're proud of you. And we brought all those things to the table. And it's called the village concept. And now here we're taught to compete in such a way that we destroy our families, that we don't respect our mothers, our sisters, our brothers that greed running everything. There is no moral consciousness in what we make decisions on and how we do them. Um, And so for me, lead with me is a sense of, again, the reciprocity of healing, the collective empowerment to get empowerment to get a lot done, the bringing your influences and your, and your resources to the table. And honestly, the excitement and energy actually comes from the sense that I believe in people and the power of their potential. I didn't know what it was as a kid, but I was excited about other success and I didn't understand it, but it really was the insight when I saw other people win, doing things, doing great things. I, I was attracted to social changers and world changers and game changers. Wow. Look at them change the world. And I just wanted to meet them, not in a sense of I'm a fan, but I wanted them to know I really believe in what you're doing. And I also got to see that if they can, the homeless man on the street at one point who was somebody and had a lot of energy to get things done and has got to this place, that person's still in them, right? Um, the people in jail, right? Life has really transformed the world. But if we really understand that we all have this purpose and we all have these gifts, I believe in the potential of people. Yes, you can't save everybody, but there's a possibility. There's a possibility that people can become leaders to change and solve at least one problem in this world. No matter where you are, no matter if you're a child, to I have a record, to I'm 99 years old, 
when you understand who you are and what you've come to do. And so my excitement is seeing the evolution and transformation of authentic power. And I go, oh, now we can get something done. I am ready. And so the energy to say, let's go, lead with me, let's go, let's go. Um, And that's how I would navigate around campus with um, my students. I know half the university hated me because the university is all about self-sustaining, you know, themselves. But I was different. I saw a lot of greatness in our students and I saw a lot of barriers and walls. So I would go into a meeting with the chancellor and I would say, I'm bringing two students' voices to the table. And they would say, this is not for students. Well, is there a meeting where students can go that I attend? And so I would bring students with me. I'm going to go speak. Who wants the role? And I'm coming, I'm coming. Sometimes they would carry my briefcase or I'd be like, grab this real quick, hold on. You know, um, and I would bring people with me everywhere I, I went. And they felt, again, opportunity. And I would acknowledge them on stage. I would say, I have to take a moment and acknowledge Jennifer. She came with me today. She did this work. And just saying your name, because I have influence on that stage. Right. Everybody has some version of influence. It changed their life. Someone, someone said, I got a call from the vice chancellor's office and they wanted to know if I wanted to come work with them for a summer or go to D.C. for this program. And so I would bring people with me to the table who aren't normally invited and using that influence. So lead with me is a part of that, too. Um, I often do that. And I will say this. Sometimes it's uncomfortable for people because the world is not set up like that. You know, you're going to get an invitation letter for a project soon. And usually people would say, why would she want to work with me? Or she doesn't even know me. And sometimes people bring it down to trust. Like, you know, why don't she trust me? And it's not about trust. Um, it's about belief, mm. right? And in belief, you get to a project and in and goals. And in goals being achieved, you get to trust, right? Mm-hmm. And understanding of who people are and their moral conscience and, and how they operate. So it's my belief in people that leads us to the place of establishing trust. And when I see you doing what you're doing, you know, I, I believe I'm a believer. And I tell people another op- opposite of it. If I don't believe I am completely dis- disconnected from you, right. <laughs> like, I'm completely turned off. <laughs> like I have no interest, but there's a, there's a fear of like, why would she offer for me to come to this bank? I used to be invited to all these banquets and balls and galas and recognition, you know, where you needed tickets and then all, you know. And I, first of all, I didn't even know how I got there. Someone brought me to the table and said, you want to come to the 100 Black Men Gala or whatever? And I was like, sure. And when I realized I could buy three tables, I filled the tables with everybody that didn't get an invitation. <laughs> I always say, just don't embarrass me. I love it. And network. The room is full of people. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So that's what Lee with me really is. I know that was a lot, but. Um, oh, it's beautiful. I love it. I love yeah. hearing this. <laughs> so one of my questions, I have just this really like practical question about lead with me, because for people who are listening, who do you work with? What is your target? So ironically, I'm so glad you asked that um, as I'm working on branding something that just kind of happened organically. Um and navigating through higher education and um, doing a lot of community work. I, I always call California my residency because that's where things just naturally happened. And I said, okay, what did you do? You helped develop a lot of people that were kids, college students. Okay. Then you were asked to come and train non-Black people. 
and work with them. And then your community started asking you to lead events in different areas and help negotiate change with the police and help negotiate policy with corporate companies or sit down with mayors and, you know, other officials. And I said to myself, what do I do? So negotiating is a big one for me. And so although the leadership work, I can always create a classroom and teach that work, but my heart is in negotiating right now the racial equitable, a racial equitable society. And who I work with, anybody who wants to come to the table and sit down to do that work. So right now I'm writing letters to Bernie Sanders, to the Speaker of the House, to the NAACP, to the um, Black Caucus, um, to, uh, I want to sit down and have meetings right now with different um, healthcare officials who are starting to write these statements of um, they're focusing on racial equity. So anyone who is saying it, we want to hold them accountable through our influence. And so right now it's community leaders, organizations, um, and any influencer who wants to partner to do the work together. So there's two sides. There's a classroom where anybody can learn. And then let's, let's get together and get some policy change. Let's get together and say, dear Speaker of the House, here are a couple things that you can do from your position. Signed, the president of this college. Signed, podcaster Jennifer Kinney. Signed, this, this, and this. Signed, right? And getting some accountability there right? And so part of healing is uh, affirming or acknowledging and accountability, right? And so we're in that space right now. I mean, I, the, the, the president said it yesterday. As he continues to say racial equity, as people continue to write letters saying they support Black Lives Matter, getting to the root of who, are, who is the CEO, who's over your diversity and inclusion training, and ask them how, is, how are their policies shaped to either affect people negatively or positively that our marginalized voices are historically underserved and underrepresented. And what part are you going to play to contribute to this new society, this new racial equitable society? And so that's who I, I'm working with right now. Um, and so my big project is sending invitation letters to people who I consider as part of the league. And um, if they're interested, they'll be a part of the league. And we would go and do that work. And that's what we're focusing on. If I had the capacity, I would have a classroom and a syllabus. I taught eight classes back home at um, university. Even that was taboo. Student affairs folks don't teach. But I, I was always taught education is 70% academics, 30% character development, and they weren't doing that work. Right. And so we started teaching classes. And so I, I had a lot of colleagues that were faculty, and I said, teach me how to write a syllabus. And I didn't wait for them, other folks to teach me that my friends taught me and I would submit brand new syllabus. So usually when you teach, you're handed a course because it's usually part of the whole major. Everything I taught was brand new and I wrote from scratch and I had hundreds of students. Wow. And so if I could, I would teach. Um, and then those th those turned into web workshops and webinars for staff and community members. So anyways, but right now it really is negotiating social change. Yeah, because I was going to ask you, wear a lot of hats and you have a lot of things going on. What yeah. is your focus? And here you've answered. And yeah, so that, that's my that's my focus with my own personal company. The truth is why I struggle so much as a black woman to get my own project off the ground to perfection or close to. I mean, we're moving and feeling good is I ha I am behind a lot of great people. Mm -hmm. 
I used to think it was a burden to be called upon for solutions or strategies. Um, I started building brands, but specifically for people who I thought were changing the world. Mm. And then one day I woke up and said, what is wrong with you fulfilling your dreams? I started to see mainly men <laughs> um, become winners and, and quote my words and do programs with my ideas and take my advice and literally become great. And it's been a fight to say I'm launching the Racial Equity League. It has been a fight to file for my LLC to say impact strategies. And the reason why Lead With Me Impact Strategies is there because that's it. Literally, I have consultations almost all day. Even with my job right now, we have over 80 innovative ministries, large ministries. We have about 50, almost 15,000 members of this church. And no one knew how to do this in the pandemic. Yeah. And I just happen to be a social media kind of guru with streaming and stuff like that. So all a lot of programs you see, I'm behind the scenes live producing those programs. All the content, every flyer you see on my page and their page, I created. And so I started doing that and I said, okay, at what point, you know, are you going to say, hey, book appointment with impact strategies, right? Um, because another thing is the strategies are all to make a social impact. Mm-hmm. And that that's how the appointments go for me. It's It's not... You know, let me just make you look good. I, I say, what I started, what problem are you solving? I go through a whole proposal format. What problem are you solving? How do you know the problem exists? What evidence do you have? What quantitative and qualitative tools will you use to measure the impact and prove it? Listen, being in California and working with predominantly white folks, you can't just go in there in your feelings. That you don't you don't get opportunities that way in these systems. And so I learned to pretty much grant write, proposal write everything I did from the smallest idea to the biggest one. I always had facts to back it up. And so you come in the room and immediately I just need to know what problem you're solving. Because if you're not trying to solve a problem and you're just trying to put out a product, I can't help you. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so that's kind of the work that Lead With Me Impact Strategies focuses on is, um, and I bring these ideas and these organizations and things to life. I'm working with a bishop and I'm working with some other folks and they say, we need to put on this conference. Okay. What what is this conference doing? Who is it helping? How is it helping? And I pretty much bring it to life. So that's what impact strategy. It was to make sure I'm not sitting there just giving my magic and giving my magic. Yes. Right. Um, and that's just branching out on my own, but the racial equity league is my baby. <laughs> I am ready. I am so ready to sit at the table. Um, and, and it also, that came from, I've been at tables when I first got out here February 2019, I got to visit the Speaker of the House and go into chambers and sit down with her and talk to her about equity. And I don't, it happened so fast. I don't remember how I got in the room. I got an invitation. Then all of a sudden we were with the FFC and then we were with the drug czar and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden, and I said, okay, how did this happen? And I had people saying, I've been here for 16 years in Washington, D.C. You come up in here six months from California. You sit with the Speaker of the House. And so I said, I'm coming back. Right. And I'm coming back with with people. (laughs) And we have some specific ass. (laughs) So I've already proven it's possible. Now let's do it with some more intention. Oh, I love (laughs) it. So for the people who are listening, like how can they support your work? What would be the best way to support your work? So the first way obviously is with anything is just to make sure you follow the platform so that you could stay informed. One of the things I just had, I'm working with an assistant to create is a sign up to be a part of the Lead With Me community. 
and we will have signups where people can come to public meetings. And in these public meetings, um, we will introduce projects that people can be involved in, work they can do. Another way people can get involved is we'll have people um, tell their stories. So when we do go to the table, we're bringing voices to the table. So and it'll be organized by those five social systems, such as healthcare, such as education. Um, and it's in those stories, as well as offering solutions um, that we'll be able to bring voices all over the country and um, to the table. So we we will be creating a way that people can sign up to be a part of the community um, and be a part of projects that we'll be launching. That way we're not doing them by themselves. There'll also be some positions open where people can lead those projects, even if it's storytelling projects, even if it's data collection and research to do that work as well. And even if it's we're writing a bunch of letters right now to, um, you know, Kaiser just announced X.X and we want to let Kaiser know here are all the things you know, you could do to make sure that we have physician, we don't have physician bias and whatever the case may be. So right now, follow the platforms. You can subscribe to the podcast, um, which is very much um, just me being me (laughs) right now. Wonderful. Um, And very soon, very soon, um, the goal is to launch for Black History Month. You'll be able to sign up to be a part of the Lead With Me community. Well, and then you'll get information on when I do offer workshops. I've done... um, Building your brand and marketing masterclasses. That's a big one right now, as you see all these social changes on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, so I teach you how to build your brand and why you need one, an authentic brand. A lot of people don't realize that your digital footprint has more weight than your resume. Your resume is usually looked at second, um, but who you are online is you looked at first. Yeah. <laughs> right? So you'll get to know those information. So yeah, follow the platforms, follow the podcast, and when... It is launched next month. You'll be able to sign up to be a part of a community. All right. Well, tell us the website and the names of the platforms. Yes. So right now you can go to HannahNaomiLead.com. You'll find out more about me. You'll find out more about the Racial Equity League and other projects. Um, You'll also see a couple workshops and things I offer. Um, And I also do a lot of speaking engagements and consultations and training. Um, So oftentimes right now, a lot of organizations are asking me to come in and do uh, work and talk about racial equity. Um, So back home, all the different music nonprofits came together who are predominantly white in Orange County and asked me to help lead some work with them. And so you can always get that work done by looking on my website and reaching out. And I can also come keynote, teach class. Those are all great things you can do and find out on my website as well. Facilitating, I'm a facilitator at heart. And so that is probably teaching and advising is probably something I'll do until the day I close my eyes. (laughs) I love it. I want to close with one question to you. And that is, but what do you do for like rest? How do you refuel and recharge? So... I am really in love with music. I see your shirt. And, the guests yep, cannot. I got prints on my shirt. Uh-huh. Uh, music has a lot of storytelling in it, um, especially gospel. Mm. I often say I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, which is a little tough out here on the East Coast where church is like life. In California, it's not as much where I'm from. But I also think about music I think about old Negro spirituals and I think about the old church houses and they were hot with no air conditioning and how slaves and in Jim Crow would run to the house and we would sing these songs. I think about how they represented hope. Mm. And 
whether you believe in God or not, there's nothing wrong with the fact that God kept my people alive so I could be here, <laughs> right? That the music that they came up with, with no instruments, the stomping of their feet and how even that came from Africa. So music is very healing for me, mm. in particular gospel music. Um, but because I'm a dancer, um, I danced for many years and then I started um, doing liturgical dancing at church. Dancing is my form of prayer. It's how I pray. So movement. I am a busybody, So I sit on the floor. I stretch all day and I look weird, like a weird California yoga girl, whatever, (laughs) as they say out here. But movement is life and movement to music is life. And no matter what genre, it is my form of prayer. So that is my version um, of self-care is music and movement. That is what I do. Um, And writing. Uh, Writing can be traumatizing sometimes because there's no, you could write and you could just not be satisfied. You got it out, but it's like a, a gushing wound. Yeah. So I still have to mentally prepare to write but movement and music, not necessarily. So that is like the end all be all. (laughs) Hannah, thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so honored. Um, And I must say this, as I said, I believe in the potential of people. Mm. I only saw you because I believed in you. Mm. Uh, You know, so what you are doing, you are, you are literally walking in your purpose. Mm. You are changing the world. You are what I consider a world changer. And I'm excited for what you are doing. So I just want to say, I see you and I appreciate the work you do. That means a lot. I appreciate that. And thank you. Thank you. (laughs)